Father God, we do pray that you'd help us this morning, help us to um, understand, Father, to, to take to heart what we hear this morning. Father, help us to know how best to live in the light of what we read. And Father, we pray that you'd be with us through some difficult passages. Father, by your Spirit, help us to understand and know you better in Jesus' name. <coughs> Amen. Amen. Are you ready for the end? There's a song that I know that says, the ending always comes at last. Endings always come too fast. They come too fast, but they pass too slow. That was someone writing about a relationship. But it's true for other things too, as we look at this passage in Revelation. We've reached the end of our our short section of Revelation that we've been looking at the last few weeks. And yet again in Revelation, we've reached the end of the world again. Uh, We've done that a few times as we've gone through, but hasn't it gone quick? We've seen some incredible things, haven't we, as we've gone through in our series in Revelation. We've seen a giant (coughs) with legs like pillars of fire, offering edible scrolls for the Apostle John to eat. We've seen prophetic witnesses perform miracles on the streets, only to be killed, but then resurrected in the sight of all. We've seen a pregnant woman chased by a dragon after she'd given birth to a child, a woman who was clothed in the sun. We've seen a terrible beast come up from the sea and make war on the saints. We've seen a beast in sheep's clothing, looking all innocent, performing miracles even, but speaking like a dragon and causing the saints to be persecuted and killed and people to receive a mark. If you've not been around for any of those and want to know what they're about, the talks are on our website. But now we're reaching the end of another section in Revelation, and as expected from what we've been seeing in Revelation... We have another ending of the world. And our passage this morning tells us one part of that story. And the next part of the story is in the next chapter. I'm afraid you'll have to wait until uh, February uh, for that. But this one, this part one, is a horrific ending uh, for the world at large. The other one that we have got coming is the blessed ending for the saints in glory. So I'm sorry, this morning we've got the horrific ending for the world at large. That's what's focused on in this passage. And the reason we set the children out, it's not for the faint-hearted, is it? But we're going to try and deal with this sensibly and as honestly as we can. It's worth remembering that all passages in the Bible are there for our good. They're there to help us. And here, this is to help us be ready for the end. God wants us to know this. That's why he's put it here. But do please bear in mind there is another part to the story. So our first heading of three this morning, a message for the world, judgment is here. We get three angels with messages that are linked together in our passage. Judgment from God is coming, and the three angels pick up on the three different parts of that message. The first angel gives us uh, the why of judgment, the second angel gives us the who of judgment, and the third angel gives us the how of judgment. So first of all, the why of judgment. Let me read to you verses 6 and 7 again. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We get an angel flying overhead, proclaiming an eternal gospel to everyone in the world. 
Now it's tempting to jump straight into thinking that what we're talking about there is the gospel of the kingdom. The good news about Jesus. The good news that Jesus died on the cross in our place and offers forgiveness and a relationship with God to us. The thing is though, that's not the content of the angel's message. In fact, the angel's message doesn't mention Jesus at all. It might be helpful to know that this is the only time in all his writings that John uses the word gospel. It's quite common in the other letters uh, and other writers, but not in John. And here it's not the eternal gospel, it's a gospel. An eternal gospel, but not the eternal one. And that fits with what we read. Actually, it's more of a response to what's happening, isn't it? It's more of what to do. Here he's being told, people are being told to worship God the Creator, to fear Him and give Him glory. And it sounds an awful lot like Romans 1, where Paul uh, writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, a judgment theme, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known to God about, about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God, it's saying there, has revealed himself, proclaimed himself to the whole world through creation, right from the beginning. And the correct response that we're given here is to honour and thank him, to glorify him. The problem is, though, that we don't. And that's the same message, really, from the angel. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgement has come. It's implied that judgement is coming because we haven't glorified and worshipped God, our creator, as we should have. And because that is what we're called to do... Uh, because there's a clue there that that's what we're called to do in the light of the coming judgment. This is what it's coming for. That is what we haven't done. We haven't lived our lives thanking God, worshipping God, glorifying God, our Creator. And as good as we might think that we are, if we haven't done that, we've missed what we're made for. It's a bit like the story that Jesus tells of a group of uh, people employed by a landowner to look after his land. They were told to look after it and give him the fruit when the harvest was in. One of the interesting things in the story is that the workers in some way do what they're told. They're left after this vineyard and they do look after the vineyard. They do grow fruit. But they do it for themselves instead of giving it to the owner. And we as human beings act like that. We might not be murderers or bank robbers. Actually, we might look as though we're doing what God's told us to do. Look at that vineyard and you'd see them growing fruit. They're there, tending the vines. They're not trashing the vineyard or destroying the fruit. But who are they growing the fruit for? Is the fruit for God? Or is it for you? And we need to think about that as we live our lives, don't we? Because there's a world of difference between doing it for God as we should be and doing it for ourselves. One is an act of obedience. The other one is actually an act of rebellion. So really the big question is, is my life about God and what he wants? Or is it about me and what I want? 
Am I living for me or am I living for God? That's the problem we have as human beings. We think it's normal to live for ourselves. And yet, that's the essence of the problem here. The angel's message is to worship God. But instead, we worship ourselves or other things. We put ourselves at the centre of our lives. The angel's message, though, is to give God the glory. But instead, we seek glory for ourselves. We've forgotten what we're here for. We've gone native, we've gone rogue for our own enrichment. We want the fruit for ourselves. And we want to steal the glory due to God for ourselves. And that is why judgment is coming, says the angel. But what about the who of judgment? We've had the why of judgment. What about the who of judgment? Well, the answer is from the second angel. It's in verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. The answer from the second angel is Babylon. Now, Babylon pictures the world system, if you like, in opposition to God. A bit like the way world is used elsewhere in John's writings. So, for example, we're told not to love the world. But that doesn't mean the people, it means the system. Jesus in John 15 says that believers are not of the world. Again, that doesn't mean we're not people, but it means we're not in the same system. In both those cases, you can replace that world world with Babylon in the way that it's used in Revelation. They're basically the same thing. And this is the first time that Babylon is mentioned in the book, but it won't be the last. This city will be one of the biggest features in the next part of the book, which we're looking at later in the year. Earthly Babylon will be contrasted with heavenly Jerusalem. Babylon will be pictured as a prostitute, whereas Jerusalem will be pictured as a bride. Babylon will fall, but Jerusalem will thrive. And it's no mistake that Babylon is chosen to picture this. I mean, Babylon is named after Babel, that great tower that our ancestors tried to build to make a name for themselves, to glorify themselves. Babylon was called Babylon the Great by its greatest emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, who was also known as the Great. It was the head of gold in the statue of the kingdoms of Daniel. The kingdom of kingdoms among the children of men. The one that all the other kingdoms sought to copy afterwards. It was in one sense the pinnacle of man's arrogance and false rule. And yet, for a while in the Bible, they occupied the people of God. God's people had a temporary home in Babylon. They lived there, but they weren't of there. They were different from the world around them, from Babylon. And it's a combination of those things that makes it such a great image for this. It's our temporary home while we wait for our enduring city. It's something that we must endure. We'll come back to that a bit later on. And it's temporary because, as the angel says, one day the announcement will come that Babylon has fallen. That this godless world system that glorifies itself rather than gives glory to God, one day that system will be over. The fall of Babylon historically is a picture of what's coming. The world, as John uses it, will be judged by God. The world will end and a new world will begin. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And Babylon 
will fall. But for now, even though as Christians we're citizens of heaven, we live in Babylon. And Babylon is a tough place to live. Later in the book, she's pictured as drunk on the blood of the saints. Here she's enticing the nations into debauched drunkenness. Idolatry and harlotry, or probably both are in mind. In the ancient world, they went hand in hand. Living a pure and godly life is hard in such a setup. But is it just the world system that will be judged? Will it be that the world will end, that the people in it will be okay? Well, no. The people will be judged as well. And it won't be pleasant. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Babylon, in the verse before, was sought after for its wine, wine that made the nations drunk. And here God gives the people what they want. You want wine, says God? Well, here is the wine of my wrath, a full-strength cup of my anger. And his judgment is poured out not just on the system but on the people, the followers of the beast, those who have the mark on their forehead, which we saw in earlier weeks of those who have their minds that are earthly things, normal people who do not have the seal of God, those who follow the way of the world. And the language here, whilst figurative, is horrific. Tormented by fire and sulfur, a reference back to Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed, by fire and sulphur. And this is done in the presence of the angels and of the Lamb. The angels and Jesus are watching as they're tormented. And this is something that goes on forever and ever. Now some have noted that it's the smoke that goes on forever and ever, as though it's a memorial. But the next line about no rest implies that they're still there. There is no rest for the wicked, as the saying goes. Well, that's actually a quote from Isaiah 48, but it's backed up here. An eternity of restless torment. Now, I want to pause here because I realise this is not easy stuff that we're talking about this morning. It might be fairly easy to get our heads round, but the implications are hard, aren't they? Now, I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher. I don't relish preaching these passages. They affect family and loved ones for me as well. And that makes this hard, doesn't it? But the whole point of announcing this in advance, so to speak, is so that we can avoid it. Listen to what the first angel says again. Fear God and give him glory. Worship him who made heaven and earth. We're told all about this so that we have time to turn. Jesus spoke about this to warn people. God is giving John this vision to warn people of the horror that is to come if they won't turn from their self-destructive, sinful ways and turn to Jesus, the Lamb, who took God's judgment on the cross for those who trust in him. This is hard, but the point is simple. 
heed the warning. Don't go there. At the end of our passage, we're introduced to three more angels. We're going to have a look at the last two and then finish with the central one of the passage. But this continues the theme that we're looking at. We've got another message for the world. The harvest is ready. Let me read to you verses 17 to 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. There's a theme of harvest here, and I nearly did this for our harvest festival, uh, with the way I worked it out. But I decided that probably wasn't appropriate. A harvest is a bit more cheerful, isn't it, than what we've got uh, here. But we do have two angels involved uh, in a great harvest. And they come down from a temple uh, in heaven. And there's one who calls uh, for the reaping of the world. He comes from the altar. That's, if you go back in Revelation chapter 6, that's where the Christian martyrs are calling out for the judgment of the world and the avenging of their blood. That's where he's from. And this is what's happening here. Here is the time of reckoning. The message is given by the angel who has authority over the fire. Presumably a reference back to what we just read in the verses before. And the other angel is told by this one that the harvest is ripe. The grapes are ready. And so he comes with a sickle and harvests the grapes. Now there were several big crops in the region at the time that he could have chosen. But grapes are chosen on purpose. They're chosen for the same reason that wine was chosen to represent Christ's blood when we share communion. Here the grapes represent human blood. And the grapes are thrown into the wine press of God's wrath. But instead of wine, blood flows from the wine press. That's what we see. And it flows out for 1,600 stadia. And that's about 180 miles. That's basically, it's almost exactly from here to the centre of London, sort of Buckingham Palace to the Houses of Parliament. That's, that's how long that river of blood is. And it's deep enough to nearly cover a horse. An average horse apparently is about five or six feet tall. So it's a huge amount. For those of us who were taught or are being taught in the metric system at school, that's 300 kilometres long and about 1.4 to 1.8 metres high. So this river of blood is longer than the River Jordan. That's what we're talking about. It's nearly as long as the River Thames. The picture is horrific. picture is horrific. But as we've seen throughout Revelation, it's nothing that we don't see elsewhere in the Bible. Jesus himself uses this sort of harvest imagery, though perhaps not quite as graphic. In the picture, a, a parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, Jesus pictures the world being like a field that one day will be harvested by angels. The wheat is taken safely into the barn, and the tares or weeds, we'd probably call them now, are bundled up and burned in the fire. 
When Jesus explains it to his disciples, he says that the angels will throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the same picture that's being used here, but the end here is being thrown into a wine press rather than being thrown into a fire. But the vision is not really telling us anything different from what Jesus tells us himself. But there is another side, isn't there, to that harvest and to this one. Well, this vision has it too. Right in the centre of our passage, I think deliberately so, we have a message to the saints in the midst of this. A message for the saints. Endure and don't fear. Let me read to you verses 12 to 16. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle uh, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth. Is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. In the light of Babylon's imminent fall, in the light of the horrific judgment that we've just been reading about, what should we be doing? Well, verse 12 tells us to endure. We are to endure, in verse 13, we are not to fear. We're to endure because life before the fall of Babylon is hard. Christians there are characterised by those who keep God's commands. If that's John speaking here as a sort of putting it in, he nearly always means by that that we love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to keep doing that and we're to keep our faith in the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to endure, to keep going in those two things. We're to keep loving one another and not give in to the world around us. We're to keep on trusting in Christ and not give in. We are to endure. That word in, uh, elsewhere is translated patient or patient endurance. We're to keep on keeping on. We wait knowing that the end of our hardships is coming. But in the meanwhile, we live in Babylon. We live in a world that is opposed to God, but that won't always be the case. That is what we're seeing, is it, by the destruction that follows. One day our exile will be over. One day we will finally be home. And Babylon that saw our destruction will one day be destroyed. When we look at the world around us, it can be depressing, can't it? But it's worth remembering that it won't always be like that. Not because we can change the world or turn it around. We might be able to make it better, but it'll just be a better Babylon. We'll still be exiles in it. But one day Babylon will be consigned to the scrap heap of of history. And the kingdom of God will prevail. And if we're believers this morning, we're part of that abiding kingdom. So he's saying, keep going, we belong to something lasting. This that we're reading here is not our end. Endure. And do not fear. We're not to fear as believers because we do have a different destination from Babylon and the followers of the beast. Believers are not headed for the winepress of God's wrath. Jesus took that wrath on the cross. It's a reminder of just what he went through. 
We're not headed for the fire and sulfur. Jesus faced the judgment of God in our place at Calvary. And that means that whilst there's no rest for the wicked, as we saw, there is rest for the believer. Death has lost its sting for us. We are no longer enslaved to the fear of death. John can even write here, blessed are those who die in the Lord, those who die as believers. Death is no longer something to be feared. We don't need to be scared of death. What awaits us as Christians is wonderful rest. Not that we'll sleep for eternity. I know that some of you are young kids are probably looking forward to something along those lines. It might seem appealing. But rest like God rested on the seventh day. Not because he was tired, but so that he might enjoy his creation. Rest like Joshua gave to the people in Israel when they entered the promised land. Where their enemies were defeated and there was peace all around. Repose, refreshment, enjoyment. No need to toil, which is what that word labour really means there. Their work on earth is done. And what they have done will follow them. That's not salvation by works. What he's saying is it's toil and hardship and endurance followed by rest. And the Spirit agrees. This has God's mark of approval. The Spirit chips in. Blessed indeed are those who go there. So eternity will not be sleeping or lounging around. We will be conscious and consciously enjoying the wonderful world that God will give to us. That's really what the Bible means by rest. Well, how do we get to that rest? Well, there's another harvest spoken of here. The words used are not the same ones as used for the great harvest. The words used here refer to a wheat harvest in the way that it's used. That was celebrated at a totally different time of the year to the great harvest. The wheat harvest, interestingly enough, was celebrated at Pentecost. That was their harvest festival for that. But here is the wheat harvest being brought in by one like the Son of Man, one who comes with the clouds, one who wears a golden victor's crown on his head. We have none other than the Lord of the harvest here. Here is the Lord Jesus. And his harvesting is different. Some people think that it's the same harvest as 17 to 20, but it would seem strange to use such similar images right next to one another, basically meaning the same thing. And what is there left to harvest if this is the same harvest as those verses? Now this is Jesus safely bringing in the wheat harvest, while the verses that follow are the reaping of the grapes to be crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. It's likely with the placement that for both, this is the final judgment. In chapter 15, we're going to see the saints safely gathered around the crystal sea, celebrating victory as Moses did, crossing over the Red Sea and singing the song of Moses. In fact, we're going to be looking at that passage next week from Exodus as we start a new series there. Now, it could be the gospel going out, as that's being spoken of as, as a harvest, isn't it? Jesus speaks about uh, the harvest being plentiful, meaning his disciples to go out. But with what follows next, it seems more like this is the final gathering, rather than the gospel going forth. So here then is the end. Here then is judgment day. Here then is the beginning of the rest of eternity. The saints are gathered in, and the rest are judged. And as we said at the beginning, endings always seem to come too fast, don't they? I genuinely believe this is the next thing on God's calendar. 
But there's nothing more needs to happen before this happens. Jesus said he would come like a thief in the night, at an hour that we don't expect him. So our job in the light of this is to be ready. Be ready for the end. Are we ready for that end? If you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus for your future, do it now. (coughs) The time is short. We don't know how long we have left. If you're a believer this morning, are you living in the light of the end? Are you living for God's glory or your own? Are you bearing fruit for God like you were made for, or are you hoarding it all for yourself? Are you enduring under the hardships of Babylon, or are you just going with the flow? These are important questions for us, aren't they? Are you telling people the good news about Jesus while there's still time? One day it will be too late, and the stakes, as we've seen, cannot be higher. So let that motivate you and me beyond the fear that we feel about talking to our friends, our neighbours and our family about him. Are you ready for the end? Well, let's pray for endurance as we live in this fallen world, awaiting the harvest that is to come, when we'll be brought safely home. Let's pray. Father God, we've read some hard things this morning. Father, we pray that you'd be with us as we think about loved ones. Father, we pray that you'd be with us as we think about um, eternity. Father, it's not easy. But Father, pray that we would live in the light of the end. Father, help us to keep going as Christians and to keep witnessing to our Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray, may there be many who are brought in in that good harvest. Uh, Father, may there be many who are uh, welcomed into that eternity of rest. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.